Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome to day two of Heritage Radio Network on tour from Slow Food Nations. My name's Kat Johnson, and I'm here with Hannah Forden, our membership coordinator. Good morning. It's a little bit blustery and cooler today. Uh, we're excited to kick off day two of our interviews, and our first guest of the day is someone that we've seen here and there all over the festival. Um, Kate Cox, welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour. Hello, thank hey, Kate. you. Kate is the editor for the New Food Economy, and um, among many of the topics that they cover right now, the month of July, they're doing um, a Meat Month feature. So let's start off there, Kate. What's, the, what's going on with Meat Month? Geez, we're about um, two weeks into it. So we started Meat Month, and I should say really the impetus for that uh, an entire month's worth of heavy-duty meat coverage and thinking um, was a piece that we ran, a feature piece by the author Lynn Curry, who's written a cookbook called Pure Beef, and pitched me back in January the idea of exploring conscious carnivorism and what that looks like for real-life eaters, the tremendously subjective experience of eating meat. Um, so we took that feature, we ran it last week, and then we thought, that's not enough. We want to talk about more aspects of consumption and production. And so we decided we would run a feature every month for the month of July um, that looks at all sides, from eating it to not eating it to, to making it. Um, and so we're about, actually, we're, we're, we're going to run a feature every Monday, and then every Thursday we bring in an expert to do Q&A with us and answer everyone's burning questions about meat and labeling and how to buy and what to buy and if it's okay and the rainbow of concerns and <laughs> that you people and, have. You and Lynn did a presentation or, or a talk at the Leadership Summit on Friday, we which did. was very interesting. I went, and I think that there were, there were a lot of differing opinions on what it means to be a conscious carnivore and you guys started with what let's define what that means yeah so can you talk a little bit about that and then kind of the different topics you touched on in the panel with Lynn yeah and it's interesting I mean like lots of things in food there's no universal definition for this and there's certainly no regulatory help um, you know USDA does not have a conscious carnivore guide so in many ways we're kind of guided by our own experience and values and ethics so we started the panel um, um, looking at the state of the industry as it is, USDA had re released some numbers on production um, and consumption in April that I thought were pretty interesting because some of them were um, record-breaking. So, for instance, we're going to produce over 100 billion pounds of meat this year for the first time ever. Um, and at the same time, consumption is up for the first time in a few years. So, an average American is going to eat 222 pounds of meat this year. And that's equivalent to basically 10 ounces of protein, of any kind of meat protein, in a given day. So taking those numbers, looking at how much we're making, I think there's something along the lines of 10 billion farm animals slaughtered for food every year. Looking at that and then juxtaposing it against the very nebulous and squishy definitions that people have about conscious carnivorism. What was interesting about that was that we had people in the audience who probably are in the higher level knowing and understanding food category. So we call you know, the average eater, a civilian eater. These are producers. These are folks who work in the supply chain in some way. And they came in with lots of different ideas about what it means. So it seems like people are looking at it through maybe four different lenses. Ethics, 
possibly culture or religion, um, health and nutrition, and production, sustainability, environmental impact. And so we, we asked people just, what does it mean to you to eat meat consciously? And we must have had, we had a whiteboard, you know, and I probably had 50 or 60 different answers coming at us from the audience, which was, which proved our hypothesis that there's not a universal definition, there's not even a working definition. And I think the aim of the feature was for us to kind of be a reflection of that, of the real life experiences, the stickiness, the confusion. Um, and of course, because we're journalists, we don't talk too much about what to do about that. It was more, let's meet people where they are in the experience of, of eating meat. And one thing I noticed, you guys presented a few case studies of different yeah. people who are kind of you know, wrestling with their own ethics and cultural um, factors involved in like their meat choices. But they're also, on the other hand, there's an access issue and some meats that people really want to be able to eat are really expensive. And so what, it, what have you and Lynn kind of discovered in talking to some of these people and, and what's like that struggle for, an, for a, a typical eater? You know, access is such an interesting conversation because Lynn and I were saying we could almost host a totally separate summit about access issues. And just like meat eating concerns, access issues look different for everyone. What seemed to be a concern for the group of folks we were talking to at Slow Food was access to information and education. And I think on the producer side, especially if you're a small scale producer, that's a huge concern because if if the average eater doesn't understand your production methodology, doesn't understand that they can have access to you or how to approach a farmer to ask questions, that sort of puts your supply chain hold in jeopardy a little bit. So there was a lot of concern about that. I think obviously in many places it's geographical. Mm -hmm. So we had some folks saying, you know, well, just go meet your farmer. And I'm thinking, well, I live in Queens in New York City, so I could go meet my farmer but I don't know where that farmer would be. Mm. They're probably not in Flushing Meadows Park. Um, so there was that. There was, of course, access to product. So there's plenty in the grocery store. But if you are concerned about what's on a label, for instance, you don't get a whole lot of help from USDA in terms of sussing that information out. If it says grass-fed, how do I know? Do I know it's a product of USA if I'm concerned about that? How do I vet that information? So... Labels kind of provide something of a framework, but then there's a whole other tier of information an eater needs to access. Um, and I think that's a, that's a huge responsibility. It's, it's a responsibility lots of us aren't, aren't up for, don't have access to time or resources for. So I think the, the kind of overall consensus of that conversation was like you bump along and you do the best you can and you try to hold on to a few sort of concepts that matter to you, whether it's grass-fed or no antibiotics, um, you know. And the producer conversation was much more intense than that. Mm. That was much more about, like, naturally inseminated and bio-appropriate feeding and things like that that, I, that, you know, sussing that out for yourself as an eater would be beyond demanding. Right. And one point you made, and this is kind of come from a personal point of view for you, is, like, there's so much information out there about every single type of meat that maybe the best thing you can do is choose one thing yeah. that you're like, and you, for you it was eggs. It's eggs. Like I yeah. can I can wrap my head around the information I need to know as a as a purchaser, as an eater of what I should look for when I'm shopping for eggs. Would you recommend other people do the same? It's like if if beef is the thing you care about or if pork's the thing you care about. Totally. I mean it. 
being an eater <laughs> is a sort of like a, I always call it like a UN level negotiation with yourself mm-hmm. and the supply chain. Um, and I do think the best way to, to prevent catastrophic overwhelm is to sit down and say, if I could drill down into one aspect of this that feels fundamentally important, whether it's nutrition or ethics, and learn everything I can about that, figure out what third-party certifications are out there that I can verify, that I, ha- that I fully understand, and stick with that. Let that guide your purchasing decisions. It's, it's honestly the only way to c- keep c- from going completely insane. Mm-hmm. And, and, and truly, eggs, is no, they're no easier. In fact, we always talk about like the meltdown in the egg aisle. You know, you're presented with just an epic level of choices and humane certified, no antibiotic, grain fed, all of the, you know, non-GMO. It's like, what should I care about? How do I know if what I care about is actually something I can verify. And so you present so I often just stand there and mm. look at this look at this array of choices and, and prices and think, here's how I'm probably gonna make the decision. What I can afford, what's here at the grocery store, and what I have time for. And that's true for me and I write about food and the supply chain all day, every day. And I still make those same really calculated decisions. Eggs, the only reason I've ended up on eggs is because we did a lot of reporting on the truth about pasture, uh, about pastured hens. Um, and as part of that reporting and that research, we looked at the three generally accepted third-party certifications. Um, and there are a couple that are more stringent than others. So that's what I hang on to, and I hang on to it completely for dear life, like most eaters. So in the same vein as meat, uh, the Meat Month, where you know, Lynn wrote this great feature, and you guys decided to turn that into much more robust coverage of this one topic, are there any other topics like that that have maybe even come up this weekend that you guys at New Food Economy think deserves more attention and more coverage? Yeah, no doubt. I did a panel yesterday called When Disaster Strikes, which brought together six people who have survived a disaster. Um, Hurricane Maria, Irma, Katrina, the Kobe earthquake in 1995, and Puerto Rico was a significant part of that conversation. We had Sofia Inanue from La Mañana and Tara Rodriguez Basosa to talk about what's happening on the ground there. And I learned a ton. It was an intensely emotional conversation. And I feel like, you know, I talked to our, our co-editor after afterward, and we both were just buzzing with ideas, like, all right, we need to devote a significant amount of coverage to stuff that came up in this conversation that we're not seeing a ton of press coverage on that is urgent in every conceivable way. So that's one thing I think we're going to go right back to New York and dig into. It's not so much just what's happening on the ground in Puerto Rico, but it's a really provocative and interesting conversation about whether after a disaster you try to rebuild the infrastructure as it exists or you start utterly from scratch and redesign um, public spaces and think about just development and involve the people who live there in creating that future place. And of course that involves food Mm -hmm. and how we would think about the food system. So there's some really intense thinking around that there. But all of that aside, all of the eastern coast of Puerto Rico is still in the dark. And I learned yesterday that it's the largest, longest blackout in U.S. history. So to us, that feels like we get right back on a plane and go back to New York and start Mm -hmm. probing that discussion. That one for sure. And you were mentioning this last night that the 
gentleman from Japan yeah. who is, has the sake brewery. And I thought that it was really interesting to include someone uh, um, who is meant like a couple decades now past the disaster and you take kind of a longer term view at what recovery could look like. Yeah. Can you speak to that a bit and sure. how that brewery changed? Yeah. So that was Takasanake Yusufuku from Kobe. Um, and that was interesting because that disaster in Kobe, which was a 6.9 magnitude earthquake that happened in January of 95, uh, totally demolished a, a family brewery that he is a thirst. 13th generation owner of, so 250 years old. What we learned from that conversation was that most associations we have with Kobe are about beef, but sake is a significant driver of of the economy locally there. It's like the second most significant product for them. What it did for them, and this is maybe something you can only have a conversation about 20 years out, was that it opened up a bunch of opportunities. So uh, Richard McCarthy from Slow Food asked me when we were kind of preparing this panel, one of the questions we really wanted to focus on was what got better after the disaster? And for Takasanake and his brewery, what got better was that they fundamentally changed a cultural ethos that had been in existence for hundreds of years, which is that sake breweries traditionally are closed to the public. The process is private. It's not something um, that we invite people in like we would invite them into a microbrewery here and to go through and do a tour and a tasting and a tap room. It is a private, very proprietary process and culturally significant that way. What they decided to do after the earthquake there at his brewery was to open it up to the public to create a restaurant centered around sake as a, as a primary ingredient and a, and a tasting option. And that changed the way that the community related to that product and to the, to the brewer and and that was something that he learned over 20 years was how to save that um, culturally significant product and ingredient from that region by making it infinitely more available to people in terms of process and information. I thought that was fascinating. And he was the furthest out from his disaster. So we really had kind of a spectrum of, of time and, um, you know, we had people who are still right in the middle of it, Belia Ramos from Napa County, where fires are burning as we speak, and um, Tara and Sophia from Puerto Rico. We had Ben Burkett and, and Poppy Tooker from New Orleans, who have also a little bit of a long view, mm-hmm. but for whom a disaster is still kind of an unfolding everyday experience. New Orleans is still incredibly vulnerable, infrastructure-wise. So I, that was, that was a, a humbling and really fascinating conversation that I think we could have gone on having for many hours afterward. Yeah, and I'm curious if, if you know of any organizations that specifically like work in a recovery, in, work with disaster recovery in a way that does focus on long-term recovery. That's what's so interesting about the conversation from yesterday, that the consensus was sort of, all right, government may be okay, but you can't count on them always, is what Ben Burkett said, and that was just so resonant for the audience. It's like, there are resources available that are federally established. We don't know when they'll get here. We don't know how widespread they'll be. What if we're out of the zone of assistance, so to speak? You know, What if you're like Ben in Mississippi versus in the hot middle of New Orleans that's getting all the national attention? So what seemed to be the case for the people in that conversation was that there were these de facto informal networks of people that came together around a particular foodway. So in, in the case of New Orleans, for instance, 
the urban-rural connection was established and maintained through the Crescent City Farmers Market, which allowed food to be coming in and food to be going out, solved some transport issues, brought cash in for farmers who needed it in an urgent way immediately. But that was all informal, the way that that was created. That infrastructure was built by people and through people relationships. And that seemed to sort of be the consensus of the conversation yesterday was, was people build relationship networks that may not even have a name, that may not last through that initial response time, but that are how things get done on the ground when nobody has any idea what to do, while the government may be still sort of assessing the overall disaster toll. Folks need immediate essentials, and, and things may not have reached them, so they make it happen. Mm. And that there was a lot of conversation about that yesterday. Interesting. Um, and then kind of flipping back to Conscious Carnivores, you have another event coming up this afternoon in that same yes. vein, right? Yep. So that's at the Food for Change tent at 2 o'clock. I'm going to be joined by Dana from Meatless Monday and Kara from ASPCA um, on the farm animals side. So we're going to have two kind of very different perspectives. Our idea for this conversation was to make it very much about the everyday how-to mm-hmm. of solving some mindless, mindful eating conundrums at home, at your dinner table. And so we brought these two folks in because, again, from a journalistic perspective, I tend to try and gather the right people to have the answers Mm -hmm. rather than trying to figure out what they are. (laughs) Thank goodness that is not my job. Um, But we're going to talk about how you can look at reduction methods in your own family and in your own life. And if you're just starting to have a conversation about eating meat consciously, how you might approach that. And Kara's going to talk about resources that that ASPCA has brought together for people to to, um, consumer guides and labeling translators, which I think is brilliant. Mm. Um, Really nuts and bolts stuff. And then one last thing I wanted to ask you about the conscious carnivores thing is you kind of mentioned that it would be really great if we had some sort of app out there <laughs> similar yeah. to seafood watch totally. yeah a lot of people are probably familiar with seafood watch that the monterey bay aquarium has produced uh it helps you figure out when to eat what type of seafood sustainably um what do you kind of envision for for that for the meat side um would it be more focused on labeling and trying to de- decipher all these labels and i think a label decoder is I mean, I, I put that out there to innovators, like, let's have a label decoder. The challenge with that is that there's several levels of information you have to drill down into to figure out whether the label that you're looking at is giving you the information you need. So that would be a really interesting challenge. But the other conversation I've heard that I think is more interesting deals with appropriation and using that term specifically to talk about appropriation of the locally produced ethos for restaurant menus. So on the producer side, I think there's been concern that producer names that have name recognition as local or sustainable or both get appropriated for restaurant menus when they may not actually be purchasing that product. So there was some conversation about whether we could create an open source tool that would allow diners or producers, if they're on site at a restaurant and see that a name is being used um, without being sure that they're actually supplying to that restaurant, if there's a way for us to just upload that information somewhere Mm. and have kind of a a clearinghouse so that we can say, this restaurant menu doesn't match the reality of the buying situation in this particular restaurant. That seems really important to producers in the mid-size range of, of the system. 
Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. kicking off day two of Slow Food Nations with us. And I hope that our events this afternoon don't get rained out. Me too. (laughs) Me too. But you know what? We'll just go to the grocery store and have a big old meltdown if that happens. Love it. Love (laughs) it. We'll meet you there. In front (laughs) of the eggs. Exactly. In the egg aisle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the wall of eggs. Kate will help us uh, navigate all of them. It'll just involve a lot of Kleenex and crying. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, Okay, well, I quickly want to thank our sponsors who made our coverage of Slow Food Nations possible. Thank you to Hearst Ranch Beef, to the Julia Child Foundation, and to our friend Julie Schaefer, who will be coming by the tent at noon, so come listen to Julie. Uh, She's been involved with Slow Food for a very long time, and so we're excited to catch up with her. Um, Stay tuned. We will be back in just a few minutes. Thanks again, Kate. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.